What a story. That's a long section of scripture, but we believe with all of our hearts that the most important thing that we'll hear, the most important voice we'll hear when we gather each Sunday is the voice of God. Amen? And that's found in scripture. It's not found in a man with a microphone standing up here as I prepare this sermon. But thank you so much. Let's give a round of applause to Karis and to Mike for blessing us, reading through that scripture. That's a great blessing to me as well. We're in a series right now through the book of Acts in in these chapters 6 through 9 called Outcasts and Enemies, and we're seeking to answer this question. Was the gospel message that the first disciples believed and preached only for a select few of people, or was it big enough even to reach the, the outsiders, the outcasts of society, and the enemies of the church? And last week, our, our big idea was this, how we handle communal conflict will either make us or break us. Ethnic discrimination and division were threatening the early church because only certain windows were provided for and others were excluded. The church in Jerusalem, led by the apostles, they led in repentance. They realized that this was sinful and wrong, what was happening in their community. And they selected seven men who would fairly and rightly administer care without partiality. And this group was then assigned to the task so that the apostles could continue to remain undistracted from the mission of proclaiming the good news of Jesus and multiplying followers for his kingdom. You see, no person, no person at all, according to the gospel that the apostles preached, not according to race, ethnicity, nation, language, gender, status, is outside the invitation to receive God's gift of eternal life and entrance into his family through faith in Jesus. We care for all people because God sent his son for all people. Amen? But what about our enemies? How are we to respond when we're faced with opposition, even severe opposition like we just heard about in the stoning of Stephen? We just read his account He's one of the seven who was described from our reading last week. Seven men set aside who were full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, and they were called to serve tables. But as you could see from Stephen, this man was full of the Spirit and qualified to do much more than serve tables. And he was the object of such opposition. Is the gospel good enough for outsiders, even our enemies? This is a long narrative, and Stephen's speech is the longest one recorded by Luke in Acts, interestingly, uh, to see that he has the longest, longest one. But for the sake of time, we can't turn over every stone today uh, to unearth the riches of this passage. I'll let you soak in this passage if you want to a little bit more. However, we're going to spend a little bit of time comparing or rather contrasting two groups of people. We have Stephen, and we have his opponents, his enemies. And we're going to cover this story in in three sections. We're going to see Stephen and his enemies. We'll see Stephen's defense. And then we'll see Stephen's execution. And then we're going to seek to answer the question we try to wrestle with every week. What does this mean for Monday? (laughs) So what? We've seen what this meant for Stephen. And it's quite a moving story. Amen? I mean, it's, it's really something to see Stephen's heart and his focus even there at the end. But what does this mean for me now? How are we called to live in light of such amazing courage? We want to submit to the Holy Spirit's guidance in transforming our hearts and conforming us to the image of Jesus, right? We sang it, make me more like you, Jesus. Make me more like you, Jesus. We want to ask, how is that done? 
Well, with our need uh, for the Spirit's help in mind, let's pause for just a moment right now. Let's open our hearts through prayer to His illuminating power for us today. Father in heaven, through the grace that's given to us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit, we ask, as Psalm 119, 18 says, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. We trust that you'll do that for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Again, the narrative here. Three parts, Stephen and his enemies, Stephen's defense, and Stephen's execution. So let's jump right in. First of all, Stephen and his enemies. And we see that Stephen was full of grace and power. He was, he was out there preaching the good news about Jesus and accompanying with that during this season of the life of the church to show that their message was not just the words of men, but that it was actually the message that had come down from God. God allowed the apostles and some of these early disciples, including Stephen, to be ones that were performing great signs and wonders. But the, the key word there is that it's a sign. It's not meant to point to themselves. It's a sign to point to the power of God. And he was doing this. Great and wonderful and mighty works. And there were some people that were jealous of this. Who is this guy that's just showing up and proclaiming with such authority and performing these signs and wonders? And so we see Stephen's enemies. Uh, it says there was a group from the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, they were the ones who, uh, they were, they were Greek-speaking Jews like we saw last week. There were Jews all over the Roman Empire, and some of them didn't grow up in Judea and, and, in, and in Palestine as we know it. They weren't speaking the, the Hebrew or Aramaic language. They were actually Greek speakers. And they were set free many hundreds of years before, and they took a lot of pride in being freed men, and they had gathered together. This was their synagogue where they could talk about devotion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were devoted to the law of Moses. They were really powerful passionate about their religion, but they spoke Greek. Well, what did these guys do? They stirred up the people, or they, they worked up a, a kind of a, a rabble, a plot against Stephen because they were jealous of his power. They wanted to be the ones that had the center of attention. And so what did they do? They, they sought some people to falsely accuse Stephen and get him into the trouble with the crowds and with the Jewish leaders. And, and it says they dragged Stephen into the Sanhedrin, the, the leading council. What was the accusation that they brought against him? They said, this man never ceases to blaspheme against Moses and against God. Isn't it interesting that they, they named Moses first? Now, this could be a sign that maybe their devotion really was to Moses more than it was to God. But I think what's happening here is that they're saying, we worship God through the law, through the commandments that God has given to us through Moses. Moses was revered. They had a high view of the law of Moses as God's revelation and, and his covenant with the people Israel. And to bring this charge against Stephen of blasphemy, this was serious. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, that says that blasphemy was punishable by death. But it's interesting to see how they bring this charge against him. In fact, in, in verse 13 of chapter uh, 6, excuse me, or, uh, yeah, chapter 6, it says that they brought false witnesses against Stephen. How ironic. The ninth commandment itself says, of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness. Do you see the hypocrisy here? These enemies desiring to gain the attention for themselves in the name of their holy and righteous devotion to religion are actually willing to break the ninth commandment so that they could get Stephen out of the way. And they say, this man does not stop speaking against the holy place and against Moses. They care deeply about their 
roots in their ceremonies and their customs and their traditions related to the holy place, the temple is what it was talking about. Now, this isn't the temple, if you know your Old Testament, that goes all the way back to Solomon's time. This is another temple that was built by King Herod. And what's interesting about this temple is that it was a grand and glorious structure, a great building, but it was missing something very significant. Jesus worshiped there, but Jesus also recognized that the glory of God that was present in the days of Solomon was missing in that day. He says this this man also, he doesn't just speak against his holy place, he speaks against the law of Moses. Again, the irony, claiming that he speaks against the law of Moses, but they use false witnesses breaking the ninth commandment to bring these accusations. And they said, we've heard Stephen saying that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and he's going to change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Now, this is not true, friends. We've got it recorded even in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Jesus didn't go around saying, I'm going to come through here, and as a king, I'm going to destroy this temple. No, he said, you know what? I I want you to know this about the temple. My body is a temple. And if you destroy this temple in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. Jesus understood that there isn't anything special about the building itself. What was special is the glory of God in the midst of his people. And he says, I'm a better temple in your midst. It was a false accusation against Jesus. It was a false accusation against Stephen. And Stephen, as well, never said that Jesus came to change the customs of of Moses or to change the law of Moses. No, Jesus had come, according to his own words, according to the apostles and also Stephen, to fulfill the law, to be the end or the purpose for which the law was written. And so the Sanhedrin look at Stephen and they say, what do you have to say about yourself? And, and it's interesting here in these verses, it says that as they looked at Stephen, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel, verse 15. The face of an angel. The face, not of this, you know, cute little angel, you know, like laying on a pillow or something so innocent. But actually looking into his face and seeing this man has encountered something absolutely amazing. It suggests that Stephen had the appearance of one inspired by and in touch with God, reflecting God's glory, one commentator says. He was reflecting the glory of God. Here are these men, angry, jealous, but yet they look at him and they say, there's something different shining about this man. He's experienced something. And so Stephen stands up and he gives his defense. Now, this is a long, long defense. This is a long sermon, as if I'm one to actually criticize the length of Stephen's sermon, right? But this is a long sermon, one of the longest we find in all of Scripture, as Luke records it, and friends, I don't believe that Luke is recording every single word down to the detail, but I think he's giving us a divinely inspired summary of what Stephen said. And I don't think that Stephen was even able to finish his sermon. I think these leaders got so enraged that they stopped him short. But we're going to see several things in, in Stephen's defense. And, and the first thing I want us to see is this, the glory of God. If you want to understand what, what's this all about, Pay attention to the glory of God and pay attention to this phrase that he uses over and over again, our fathers. 
our fathers, our ancestors who lived out this story. And if you want to understand where are these stories coming from about Abraham, about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers, where's the story coming out about Moses and of, of this tabernacle in the temple? It's all in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Stephen is wanting to show his audience that, hey, I'm not just here making this stuff up. No, but this movement of Jesus is rooted in the ancient story of God rescuing and delivering his people. So follow the glory. Follow the glory. If you want to see what Stephen is trying to get at, follow the glory of God, it says. It says in chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. God gave Abraham a promise that he would bless all, that through Abraham, God would bless all the nations of the world. Abraham had no sons, but God gave him a son, Isaac, as he and his wife were, were very, very old, probably in their 90s and 100 years old. God did a miracle by allowing them to have a son named Isaac. And so Isaac was the in, 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 uh, receiver of the promise, and the promise was passed on then to his son, to Jacob, and then passed on to Jacob's sons, to, uh, to, to the 12 patriarchs, right? But it's interesting here that even these sons rejected the glory, rejected the promise of God. They took one of their brothers, Joseph, against whom they were jealous, and they threw him in a ditch and sold him to Egypt, our fathers, Stephen is saying, rejected the promise in a moment, but God in his mercy delivered them. Joseph went down to Egypt, but God was with him and granted him favor. It's another way of saying the glory of God traveled with Joseph to Egypt. Friends, isn't that great to know? No matter what we go through, the glory of God can be as near, whether or not you're in a pit, in a prison, or if you're in the temple of God himself. The glory of God goes with his people. God granted him favor and was with him. And though the patriarchs had turned on their brother Joseph, God delivered, again, Stephen says, our fathers by sending them to Joseph in Egypt so that they could survive a famine. If you know the story in Genesis, the latter part of Genesis, this famine strikes the land and Jacob and his sons are dying and, and Jacob, uh, under God's providence, sends Joseph back down, or excuse me, sends the brothers, uh, his sons, down to Egypt. Who do they encounter? Ha <laughs> ha, what, what, a, what a coincidence, right? They encounter Joseph. Joseph is there, and, and God in his favor has raised Joseph up to be the second in command of all of Egypt. And God uses Joseph's uh, authority in Egypt to deliver his whole family. Well, they're in Egypt for 400 years. Joseph dies, Jacob dies, all of his brothers, all Joseph's brothers die. And there raises up a Pharaoh who, who is against the people of Israel. What does God do? God raises up another person that he's going to reveal his glory through. Who is that person? It's Moses. It says, uh, Stephen says, Moses was beautiful to God. Maybe like having the face of an angel, right? This was somebody that God was going to reveal his glory to and through. But over and over again, he was rejected by our fathers, his kinsmen. So much so that God even showed up to Moses in a burning bush, the glory of God. If you've read the account, you know that Moses took off his shoes, his sandals, and he said, the place where I'm standing is holy ground. He was sent away to a land far away to Midian, but the glory of God, remember, follow the glory, the glory of God appeared to Moses. Moses goes back to Egypt. He's commissioned by God to go be his instrument to deliver his people out of slavery and wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness of 40, for 40 years. Again, God is showing over and over and over again, I want you to see my glory. I want you to see my glory. And God 
displayed that through his servant Moses. Not only that, Moses received oracles from God, words from God that he passed on to the people. Our God is glorious. Here is his glorious word. God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai and the people heard and saw this great scene of clouds and thunder and lightning and they were in awe so much glory. You'd think that these people, our fathers, would understand that this is, this is the best thing about us. Not our traditions, not our ancestry, not our religion, but the glory of God in our midst. However, they rejected Moses. And in doing so, they rejected God. While Moses was even up on that mountain, what did they do? They created an idol for themselves with their own hands and saying, ah, here's our glory, something that we made, something that we did. But they rejected the true glory of God. Moses was special because God was with him and appeared to him. But Moses pointed to a greater prophet who was to come. Moses was pointing to a greater ruler who was to come. Moses was pointing to a greater redeemer who was to come. The law that Moses gave was about the glory and the presence of God, not about the works of human hands, but about his glory that had come and would come again. But what was the response of our fathers? They refused the work and the revelation of God through Moses. And Stephen goes then, he's given the case. He says, you think I'm speaking against Moses? Our fathers, the very scriptures that is written in the prophets, speak against us that we rejected the glory of God revealed time and time again. And now you want to talk about this temple, Stephen says? He says, it belonged to our fathers as the dwelling place for God, the place where the glory of God is manifest And our fathers brought it in with Joshua during the conquest into this land. As God took us out of Egypt, he brought us into this land. And that place, after Moses had died, where the glory of God was, was in our midst. And what did we do? Our fathers turned to idols. Our our fathers had a wrong view about this temple And he quotes Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2, and you can see it there, excuse me, in chapter uh, 7, verses 49 to 50. Speaking about this this house that, that King Solomon built, he says, you think this is a grand building, but listen to this. Heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You see, our father, Stephen says, were impressed with what they could do with their hands, thinking that they had built a glorious place. But Stephen is correcting them. He's quoting their very own scripture and saying, our God himself said that we could never build a house for him. What makes this house special is not our work, but the glory of God in our midst. In our midst. And so Stephen goes on and And he says, here's the glory from Abraham to his sons, then to Joseph, then to Moses, then to the law at Sinai, then to this temple that we revere so much. But what's special about all these things is not our works, but the glory of God in our midst. Stephen criticizes the temple, but not for what it is. Rather, he's finding fault for how it's viewed by them. And so Stephen is going back and forth and he's saying, here's the glory and here's how our fathers responded. And he gets to the end of his sermon and he has some really, really harsh words. 
Here comes the indictment of the leaders opposed to what God is now doing. And, and the glory of God has shown up, and, and, and he's making the case here. You, you want to follow the glory. Let's just trace the glory. Let's trace the glory to our moment, to our situation right now. Stephen, as he's standing before these, these Hellenists of, of, the, uh, of this synagogue, as he's standing before those that were brought before him as false accusers, as he's standing before the whole Sanhedrin, he's saying, let's trace the glory, and now let's think about how we have handled the glory that's come into our midst the glory of God has shown up in someone greater than Moses. The glory of God has shown up in something greater than this temple that Stephen was standing right next to. These were meant to anticipate and appoint to this one who was coming and to his arrival. But Stephen says, you rejected the glory of God as your fathers did. He's not just talking about our fathers. He's saying, we are culpable now. You have rejected the greatest manifestation of glory that anybody has ever seen. He says you're stiff-necked. I mean stubborn. It means, uh, he says you're uncircumcised in heart. They were uh, uh, opposed to the reality of that internal work of God that was supposed to transform them, not on the outside, but from the inside out. They were uncircumcised in ears. They ignored the truth. They were unbelieving and he says, you constantly resist the Holy Spirit. Resisting the revelation of God through wonders and signs and, and prophets and scripture. And he says, as your fathers did, so also do you. You are also the ones that rejected the glory from Abraham, from Joseph, from Moses, from the law, from Sinai, from the tabernacle, because you were the ones that were part of killing those that would announce this holy and righteous one's arrival, and you also were the ones who murdered the holy and righteous one. Stephen is giving a harsh indictment. And I believe in this moment, as he's giving this harsh indictment, my personal feeling is that he's about to deliver good news. You see, just a few chapters before, in, the, in Acts chapter 2, Peter's delivering a similar message. He said, you killed the holy and righteous one. And it says, those who heard, their ears were cut. They were cut to the heart as they listened. And they said, what must we do to be saved? I think Stephen is opening. Will they ask the question and I can tell them the good news that is found in repentance and faith and belief and trust in Jesus? But they never get to that point. You see, they're bringing an accusation against Stephen, and Stephen, he flips the script. The roles are reversed. It's not he, Stephen, who's breaking the law as the Jews have charged. Rather, it's his accusers who've broken the law and the covenant by slaying the righteous one who is Jesus. One could hardly imagine a bolder witness for the cause of Jesus. What an amazing, an amazing story. Well, what happened? Stephen's execution Stephen looked up into heaven, and what happens? Now, I don't believe this is a, a hallucination. Luke doesn't indicate that it's, it's just a vision or a dream. It means, it says Luke is, is describing Stephen as actually seeing something. Maybe everybody else didn't see it, but, but Stephen saw something. He saw the heavens open up as they dragged Stephen out of the city, threw him down in a ditch, and they're getting ready to stone him. He sees the glory of God. Remember, if you want to understand this story, trace the glory. Trace the glory. 
Our fathers have missed it, and now Stephen sees it in its full array in heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and Stephen said, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. Jesus, Stephen saw Jesus. He knew that the crucified Jesus is both alive and he's still at work. These guys, they were a part of putting him to crucifixion, but now he sees Jesus glorified at the throne and he says, my Jesus, my Savior, he's still alive and he's still at work. He also knew that in that moment, Jesus was sharing in his suffering. He could see the one who had suffered on his behalf. And I believe that in that moment, he found courage in the midst of his pain because he knew that Jesus was right with him. Even as those leaders took up big boulders and were getting ready to cast it down, he knew, I see the Son of Man. I see the glory. He's with me to bring me comfort. And as he was being stoned to death, he called out and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This was the sweetness in the midst of so much bitter pain and suffering, Jesus was with him. Jesus is reigning in heaven, and he was going to vindicate him as the true judge, and he will gently receive him into his presence. I love the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You ever sung that before, those of you that have been around church for a while? That old hymn? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is, well with, it is well with my soul. And I love the other verse that says, though Satan should buffet, or if he should come against me, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control my emotions in that moment that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. Can you get more helpless than about to be stoned to death? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he's bled his, he shed his own blood for my soul. I love that song. You could almost hear it in the voice of Stephen. It wasn't written yet, but the same principle is true. He said, I see my Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I know I'm breathing my final breaths on this planet, but it is well with my soul. And falling to his knees, he wasn't done yet, falling to his knees as he's being stoned, listen to this, he said, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. This reminds us of the words in Jesus as he's being crucified. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Same words of Jesus early on in Matthew chapter 5. It says, uh, forgive, uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And at the end, it says, Stephen fell asleep or he passed away. You see, Luke doesn't describe Stephen's death as such, though we would describe it medically that way, of course. He really died. But his experience was different. He was being translated from this life, beholding the glory of God imperfectly, and he was translated right into the throne room of heaven, seeing Jesus as his body was laid in that ditch, being stoned to death. What a comfort. What a hope. In the midst of such opposition, it was well with his soul. I, I believe Luke is providing a stark contrast of the way of Jesus and the way of the religious institution He's providing a stark contrast. The religious institution refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And I've just got a little chart here for you. We see that Stephen, as he's described by Luke, he was full of the Spirit. But the religious leaders, they resisted the Spirit. Stephen was full of wisdom. They were lacking the wisdom to refute Stephen. Stephen's face was perceived as an angel. But the 
the religious elite, they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and they gnashed their teeth. Stephen witnessed to the truth, and the Jews, they witnessed falsely and lied. Stephen had power and authority of God manifested through great wonders and signs, but all the, the religious leaders had was the power and authority of man displayed in his arrest, trial, and execution. And what's interesting here, we, we don't get any indication that Stephen had some buddies by his side. He was standing alone on human terms, though the others, the enemies, had large numbers of accusers and enemies. Stephen, he emphasized the glory of God. Remember, trace or follow the glory, but the others, the leaders, emphasized the sacredness of their institutions. Stephen appealed to Scripture, while the leaders appealed to their religious authority. We just saw it. Stephen saw and heard the Lord, but the others, the enemies, they closed their ears and they were blind to the glory of the Lord. Stephen was peaceful and calm, but the others were infuriated and violent. Stephen was forgiving to the end and he was merciful, but the, the enemies were condemning to the end and they were heartless. And finally, Stephen fell asleep in the presence of Jesus. Well, listen to this. The enemies committed murder before the throne of heaven. What a contrast. Let me ask you this. Who saw and who knew the real glory of Jesus? I mean, just look, looking at these comparisons, the religious leaders, they'd love to say, no, we've got a monopoly on this glory. But their glory was just the glory of their own hands, of what they could do by trying to relate to different customs and traditions that they would force on people and, and, and thinking that they had a glorious building. But Stephen knew better. He knew the purpose, the fulfillment of the law was found in Jesus. He understood that the real presence of God was found in Jesus. Luke was showing us through this chapter that though outnumbered and overmatched in religious authority and control, Stephen is the conqueror of the story, not his enemies. You may be scratching your head. How in the world is that true? Stephen gets killed in this chapter. Friends, Stephen is the conqueror in this story, not his enemies. For Stephen sees and speaks to the Lord even as he's being stoned to death while the Sanhedrin the ruling council and those with them stopped their ears, closed their hearts, and remained blind to the glory of God revealed in Jesus. For Stephen, even to death, it was well in his, with his soul. So, we traced the glory. We saw the contrast between Stephen's experience and the rejection of that glory through the history of Israel from our fathers, right? We saw that. What does this mean for Monday? What does this mean for us? And what I want to do right now is I just want to take a, a few moments to immerse ourselves in this story. And if you have to close your eyes and imagine it for a moment, go ahead and do that. That's fine. And I want to ask you this, to consider this. If you were Stephen and you were just thrown out of a courtroom without getting to complete your defense against serious and false accusations, and you're taken outside and thrown down into a ditch knowing that your accusers were bending over to pick up large stones to crush you to death, what thoughts would be running through your mind? What instinctual feelings arise when you consider being martyred just like Stephen? How would you feel in a moment if you were about to be executed for your faith in Jesus? Put yourself in Stephen's shoes for just a moment. And I want us to soak in this for just a few seconds. So I'm going to give you about 15 seconds. Think about that. What are some feelings, some thoughts, some emotions that would be going through your mind instinctually if you were in his shoes?
And now I want to ask you this, and, and this may seem kind of weird. We don't do this often. If you've got one or two words just to describe what you were feeling, just shout them out right now. I want to hear. What are some instinctual feelings you may have had if you were in Stephen's shoes? Afraid? Fear? Rejected? Indignation. Uh, this is unjust, right? Where's the vindication? Absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry, was it? Mi- misunderstood. Absolutely. Yeah. Think about this. We, we don't know uh, Stephen's whole story. Think about this. What if he was a dad, a father, a husband? What if he was a son who was taking care of an elderly mother? What kinds of feelings and thoughts would you be feeling, not just about yourself, but about those you care for? How could he do such a thing? How could he be so bold in this moment to speak words that he knew could come back against him or at least be used against him? I mean, this was a serious, serious accusation. If we're being honest with ourselves, I don't think any of us would be able to stand in such a situation without feeling in our hearts flooding with fear and temptations to recant to, uh, for our stand for Jesus. Maybe there was a moment, you know, I, at least I'd feel, did I make a mistake here? <laughs> maybe, maybe I could just pull my words back a little bit and say, hey, you know what, I, I recant, I, I don't want to go through this. I think that would be my temptation. Even Stephen, as the stones began to pound his body, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I believe that was a cry for desperate help, knowing that he had just a few breaths in this world. But Stephen passed the test. In fact, he's the first martyr recorded in church history. The word martyr, it's a Greek word originally meaning witness. It's the word martus. And, and when Jesus commissioned his disciples in Acts 1.8, he said, you will be my witnesses, martus or martyrs. And the idea there originally wasn't that you were going to die, although it could have meant that. But because the opposition to the Christian message became so fierce for the early church, witnesses for the good news of Jesus, likely, it meant that it likely would cost your life. And so during seasons of severe persecution, Witnessing for Jesus became synonymous with risking your life for and dying for Jesus. And so that word, which originally meant witness, turned into someone who gave their life for the cause. I don't know about you, but I I really like living. (laughs) I, I really like living. I was at the men's event the other day, and boy, just to be out there in that crisp air and seeing those beautiful leaves, and for some reason, hot dogs just taste better by a campfire, right? I really like living. Some people, they, some of you, I think, probably even like extreme sports, right? Bungee jumping, some of that crazy stuff. Uh, there are actually people I've heard that enjoy putting a pack on their back, going way up in an airplane, and jumping out of one that's per- functioning perfectly. They actually go, jump out in a parachute, right? Has anybody ever done that before? Skydiving, you've done this? Willingly. The plane wasn't on fire. That seems crazy to me. Why? Because I love living. Now, I'm glad you had that thrill. And obviously, we know that your parachute worked. Amen? Praise God for that. That's wonderful. Uh, But I think to myself, how could I ever do that? That seems crazy, right? But think about this. Those that risk their lives for the cause of Jesus. And maybe you've had moments, if you've been following Jesus, and, and you think about this. When my hierarchy of the things that I love the most... Do I love Jesus more than even my own life? Maybe you're asking yourself, could I ever do that? Maybe if, if 
you might not even know Jesus, you may think to yourself, this guy was nuts. Why did Stephen do this? How could I ever do that? For Stephen, this wasn't thrill-seeking. This was life and death. He never backed down. He never recanted his statement or begged for mercy. And as I read this account, and as we really dig into my own soul and you dig into your soul, I wonder how would I respond in this moment. But I'll tell you, when I read about this story of Stephen, I feel like a coward, a sellout. Could I really risk everything I have in this life for such a cause? Am I brave enough? Am I devoted enough? Am I committed enough? Could I really do what Stephen did? And if you're like me, putting ourselves in Stephen's place makes me feel as if I have a small, weak, puny faith that would likely fail the test. However, I don't think that Luke and I don't think that the Holy Spirit who guided him as he penned this scripture intended for Stephen to be the hero of the story. If we're seeking to exemplify our lives after Stephen or if we've been looking to him as the source of motivation and inspiration as we've read this this morning, I think we're missing the point. And I believe Stephen, if he were here, would correct us and point us in the right direction if we spent our, all our time today making much of him. No, I think there's a greater, holier, more merciful, more powerful, courageous, present hero in this story, and it's Jesus. I believe when we ask the question, could I do what Stephen did, Steve would answer and he would say, you take the focus off of me and place it where I was focusing. Place it on Jesus. Your question would change from, could I do that to, how could I not do that? And this is how we're going to end this morning. We're actually going to end with the big idea. Only a life full of Jesus could move from asking, how could I? to how could I not? Acts 7.58 says that there was one among Stephen's enemies, even Saul, whose, whose feet they laid at their garments. And we're going to get into him a little bit more soon. But, but he's becoming a, a leading character in the book of Acts, as we'll see. Uh, but he pens some words. He's motivated by Stephen's story, but he sees that Stephen's not the hero of the story. Later on, this Saul, he pens these words in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. He says, whatever gain I have, whatever was most precious to me, I count counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The hero of our stories that can transform us from those who would say, how could I, how could I to, how could I not, is Jesus. We see his mercy. We see his holiness. We see his sacrifice for us, for our sins, and we realize he's the glorious one, and he's with me through any challenge and any trial. And I say, how could I not give everything for him and for his cause? Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, martyrs, right? Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let's run with endurance the race that's set out for us. That sounds great, but that just makes us the hero of our stories if we stop there. Who do we look to? We look to Jesus 
the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that we set before him endured the cross. I believe Stephen in this moment saw a joy as the heavens opened up and said, yes, that's the glory that I want. These guys have missed it, but I see this glory and it is sweet even as my body is being pounded with stones. Friends, only a life full of Jesus could move us from asking, how could I, to how could I not? If Stephen's the hero of the story, and if we're the heroes of our stories, we'll be left with questions that, that may never be answered if we're trying to ask, could I ever? But as we remember the Son of God who gave his life for us and removed the eternal penalty that we own for our sin to give us life, as we remember his journey to the suffering of the cross, that was the path to uncorruptible, undiminishable, everlasting joy through his resurrection and glory. And as we remember and as we're filled with the truth that he reigns in heaven and is preparing a place for us and has forever defeated death and the grave in us so that his resurrection becomes our resurrection and his inheritance becomes our inheritance inheritance and his life becomes our life and his joy becomes ours and his glory becomes ours. This was true for Stephen. It could be true for us and it could give us peace that surpasses all understanding so that like Stephen, we could sing, whatever happens to me, it's well with my soul. We could go from saying, could I to how could I not? Friends, that's why we soak ourselves in scripture if you've been lacking courage lately for the cause of Jesus, soak in scripture, spend time in scripture so that you could see Jesus, the glorious one in scripture. If you feel all alone, surround yourselves with people that are gonna point you to the hero of our stories, Jesus. As you feel weak, call out to him, the one who is full of grace and full of truth and say, Lord Jesus, my, way, my faith is weak. I look to you, fill up my faith. But for some of you here today, you may be in a place where you could say, I could never. I asked the question earlier, if you were prepared to die for your faith, that applies to, to many of us in the room today, if we were to die for our faith. But I want to ask, have you received this faith? Have you received Jesus, the one who was crucified for our sins, buried and raised on the third day of, according to the scriptures? Have you turned from your sinful rebellion to God? Have you turned from your self-reliance and have you turned to trust and submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord? And I'm telling you, friends, you could be like Stephen. Jesus could become the hero of your story so that you could say, no matter what happens to me, it's well with my soul. You could say, how could I ever to, how could I not when I see such a glorious Savior? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we love your son, Jesus. But I, just being honest, as I've studied this week, I feel like my faith is so incredibly puny and small compared to someone like Stephen. But I thank you that we don't have to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and become somehow more like Stephen. We could just say, I want to have a vision of Jesus. I want to see it clearly from scripture. I want to receive this gospel. I want to give my life over to it so that I don't miss the glory. So would you allow us to get a glimpse of your glory as we read scripture together? as we encourage each other in small groups, as we sing even here now in a few moments, as Ian gets up here and shares his story, similar to Stephen, Jesus is the hero of my story. 
And I pray as we do that, as we see Jesus more and more, as our eyes open up a little wider and our ears become a little clearer to his voice, we could also say, it is well with my soul. So the week we could go from being people with puny faith that says, how could I, to being the kind of people that are so in love with Jesus that we would say, how could I not? Would you do it in us? Father, if there's anybody here today that's never received this good news message about Jesus, oh, I pray that you'd convict their hearts today, that they wouldn't miss the glory, but that they would see it in Jesus and put their faith in him today. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.